the corporate infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Dre Campbell, and this is Tell, a podcast where queer people tell queer stories. For the past five years, I've been hosting and curating a night of live storytelling at a queer bookstore in the city. And now I'm sharing those stories with the world. So if you need a dose of queer community or you just want to hear great stories told by the people who live them, strap on your headphones and clip on your bow tie. Because Tell is queering the narrative and telling our stories on our terms. Each episode of Tell features two stories that center around a theme. And this episode's theme is family roots. So you might get your mom's eyes or your dad's knees. But what about all the other stuff that's passed down from generation to generation? Robin Cloud is going to let us in on a family secret. But first, Mindy Raff is going to talk to us about moms, anxiety, and her bicycle. Mindy Raff is a comedian, actress, writer, and musician based in Brooklyn. She's contributed to MTV's Girl Code, College Humor, and VH1, and has performed at the Women in Comedy Festival, Sketchfest NYC, New York Funny Songs Fest, and more. Her critically acclaimed solo show, Not the One, A Love Story, was named an LGBT Best Bet by Time Out New York. Mindy's story was recorded in April 2018. awkward when you're like describing a Facebook status because you're like you had to be there on the Facebook to really understand the status about the partner and the fact that I live like a frat boy when she leaves the house and then she comes home and I'm like this might be the time after the work trip that she leaves me this might be it if I could just scrub this pan hard enough but that was that's the summary of the Facebook post um hello (laughs) Um, I'm so glad I'm not telling my shroom story because that was amazing. Um, And I really wanted to talk about my shrooms trip. And when I processed it this week, I realized nothing happened. (laughs) Like, I didn't get stuck anywhere. The only thing that happened in my shrooms trip, which was not enough for a full story, was that I I proposed to a tree. (laughs) That was it. But that's the whole story. There's not like... I couldn't make it a thing, so anyway, that was amazing. Uh, Everything was so amazing, and I wanted to talk about it instead. uh, Well, I'll just tell you. So we'll start with my mom. Uh, My mom was uh, just afraid of mostly everything that involved leaving the house. Uh, She was super social, like she went out a lot, but if there was something that involved like the potential to get injured or transfer germs or bacteria, She was not about it. Uh, She would always say things to me like, I don't know why this person would do that. And it was always in reference to like biking or hiking (laughs) or like being on the jungle gyms. But why is that child on the jungle gyms when he could sit here next to me? (laughs) 
So, surprise, I wasn't a very athletic child. I think it was a little nature, a little nurture. <laughs> but I did, I liked riding a bike. I thought biking was just magical. Uh, and I had my brother's old bike. And it was great, but it wasn't really doing the job. I really wanted my own bike, uh, specifically the My Little Pony purple bike with the you know metallic streamers and the giant um, cream-colored banana boat seat that I had seen at Toys R Us. Uh, and I grew up um, very grateful, a very privileged childhood. And I, on my eighth night of Hanukkah, I did, I got the bike. Um, I'm not gonna lie and say like, boo-hoo, no, I got socks for seven nights and the bike on the eighth night. And that's just was my reality and I'm very, very grateful for it. So I'm riding the bike in my driveway. I was just allowed to go to the driveway at the end of our driveway and my mom would watch me ride the bike and she would cry. And I'd be like, oh, she's so emotional. And then finally I was allowed to ride the bike to the cul-de-sac, which was like not that far because we lived on the end of the cul-de-sac. <laughs> but still it was like a victory, those five feet. Then I was allowed to ride the bike around the cul-de-sac. This was epic, you guys. I pedaled so fast. The streamers were like undulating. The crispy, like vanilla scented, like suburban Michigan breeze was like kissing my face. I was flying in circles, but still flying in circles. And then I biked back and my mom was at the end of the driveway and she was just crying and crying and crying. And I was like, oh, okay. My mom was like so emotional. She cried all the time. I. It was not justifiable sometimes. I mean, sometimes it was, you know, we just graduated from something or we went away from summer camp. There was a reason. Other times, grocery store, she couldn't find what she was looking for. Just <laughs> tears. But she cried a lot. She cried the most in the car. She would cry driving. I'd be sitting in the passenger seat. Her knuckles would white. She'd breathe out of her mouth like, then she'd say, shit, 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 shit. Which is like a terrible word. I, didn't, I knew we weren't supposed to say that. And then she would just start sobbing for like 30 seconds, maybe a minute, and it'd be over. And I thought, okay, that's what adults do when they, when they drive. I guess that's just how it is. That seems normal to me. Um, I never quite graduated from my My Little Pony bike to my adult bike. I think it's because I was a kid who didn't like finish her athletic activities. Or maybe it's because I maybe learned why my mom was always crying around bikes. I don't know, I, I quit things easily. I did like ice skating after that. And I really did think I would be a figure skater. Not like in the Olympics, okay? <laughs> but like I would at least get to nationals. So I did figure skating for about 18 days <laughs> until my instructor, Miss Bethany, told me that I'd have to wait two years before getting a costume, which is like, no thank you, Miss Bethany. I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna dress like a figure skater at home on my own time. <laughs> By the way, that's a little nugget of something I learned at a very young age, that you do not have to do the thing to wear the costume. <laughs> very important. Um, so remember that. You can bedazzle and wear jumpsuits and spandex. You don't have to put on the blades at all. 
So I quit figure skating. Now I'm a teenager and I'm starting to, you know, become a person. And I realize that I'm a lot like my mother. I'm afraid of things. I don't want to do things. I don't want to participate. I feel weird about it, but it's just like who I am. I don't want to go to parties. I don't like meeting new people. I'm like doing a lot of stuff to distract myself from people. And I don't want to get out of bed in the morning because that would mean that something really bad could happen. If something really bad happened, then it's all my fault. And I'm thought, okay, this is fear. What is this? I felt ashamed about it because I thought everyone's head has these like debilitating, looping thoughts and everyone else is just handling it a lot better than I am. No one ever really used the word anxiety when I grew up. There was not that word. Uh, in fact, if you asked me like six or seven years ago, hey Mindy, were you an anxious child? I would have been like, no, I wasn't an anxious child. I just happened to be like constantly prepared for like death and destruction and emergency <laughs> at all times. Um, and my mom kind of enabled my anxiety. She didn't mean to, but you know, she was anxious too. So she'd be like, oh, why you want to go to that zip lining hiking trip? You shouldn't go. And I'd be like, mom, I want to go. I hate you. But I'd be like, yes, I don't have to go. And I would like stay home and listen to uh, my Barbara's back to Streisand, uh, back to Broadway CD. Do you guys know the one where she does harmony with Michael Crawford? the music of the night, nobody like, let the fears begin, let your darker sign give him scene. Anyway, I could do the whole thing after. It's very like, you know, everybody says don't, and oh my God, the best, I'm like, children will glisten. It's the best, best Barbara CD, and don't fight me on it afterwards. So those were my Friday nights as a teenager. And looking back, uh, we never called my mom anxious either. You know, we called her emotional. She was just really emotional. And she did have a reason for being specifically emotional about the bike riding and, uh, you know, being in the car. Because when her brother was nine years old, he was biking over an overpass without a helmet, got hit by a car and passed away. So it kind of made sense to me why she was emotional about the bike riding. But I keep thinking about her anxiety and when it started. And I don't think her brother's death caused her anxiety. I think she always had anxiety and then the death probably pumped it up and like triggered it. And I don't think my mother's death 10 years ago caused my anxiety, but I think that definitely pumped it up and triggered it. Uh, sadly enough, my mom did die in a bicycle accident. No, I'm just kidding. Oh my God, can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, that would be a much better story. Can you imagine? God, oh my God, like, there'd be like a Nicholas Sparks novel. Her brother died in a tragic bike accident, then she fell in love with a man named Raul. He taught her to bike and then boom. No, oh my gosh, but no, it was just cancer. It was cancer. Just stomach cancer. But after, you know, what are you gonna do? You gotta laugh. But after my mom uh, passed away, uh, oh gosh, almost a little over 10 years ago, I, uh, I was managing the anxiety that I had because I didn't call it anxiety, I called it fear, which is a shameful way to manage something, in my opinion, for my life. But I was managing it, you know, I was hiding it, I just thought it was normal and that everyone has these thoughts. And then after my mom died, I just could not manage it anymore, it got really bad. I, I kind of stopped participating in my life. I would get a little workaholic, like I would only write and do comedy, but I wouldn't 
do anything else socially. I would cancel plans all the time. I didn't go into my office for like two weeks. I just like couldn't get out of bed. It was getting very, very bad. Um, but I was work workaholic at the time, so I was writing this book. And this book was about a hypochondriac teenage girl whose mother was dying of cancer. And it was a young adult novel. And um, it came out in 2013. And I started to read the reviews after the book came out when I was kind of at my lowest, like just all writing a note play makes Mindy a dull, anxious girl, but I didn't know it. And you should never read reviews for anything you do. It's just the worst thing ever. It's like going on a date with someone and then like hacking into their phone and reading the texts they send your friends about you. No good can come of it. Like you're not for everybody. Not everyone is gonna like you. So I'm reading all my book reviews on Goodreads, right? And regardless of if the reviews were great or negative or indifferent, there was one constant line, which was, Izzy, the main character, suffers from anxiety. Izzy, a hypochondriac who's majorly anxious, Izzy has anxiety. And I'm thinking, like, well, I wrote this character after me, and she does not have anxiety. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> And I'm kind of proud of myself that maybe I'm the first person who ever like diagnosed herself with anxiety via reading a handful of her Goodreads reviews. <laughs> That's, wow. But uh, it was mind-blowing and eye-opening and life-changing to put a word to what was going on in my head because fear I don't know how to handle fear. I kept saying to myself, like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And then I'm like, well, we're still fucking terrified. I need something different. But anxiety seemed slightly more manageable because I could read about it and there were things I could do. And I, had, I created all these systems because I like systems. And I had a whole number system where I was like, okay, you're out of toothpaste. Is that a one or a 10? That's a two, that's a two, that's a two. <laughs> Or you go out of the house and I look around and I say, what are the statistical odds that everyone is having this thought that I'm having right now? And if it's pretty low, I'm like, it's probably a toxic thought, okay. I had mantras like, you're not your thoughts. Uh, mantras like, you know, nobody ever dies from a paper cut. <laughs> nobody ever dies from a paper cut. But what if it's infected? Nobody ever dies from an infected paper cut. Okay, somebody might die from an infected paper cut, but it's probably not gonna be you. Anyway, that's how I kept myself occupied at the post office. It was helpful. Um, I find that my anxiety is the best when I'm on stage because I have to be present. Um, and when I'm alone, it's the worst. And she's just like, someone's going to die today, and it's all your fault. And then sometimes in the morning, she's a folk singer, and she's just like, good morning, sweet Mindy. We all die alone. <laughs> I'm like, I love you. You're so comforting to me. It's important to befriend her. It's important to befriend her. Uh, but recently I have a new mantra that I want to share with you that I've learned. Uh, my friend moved to France a year ago and she gave me her bike. And I was like, I'm not biking. <laughs> but I was like, maybe I should bike. I'm just going to bike from like Bushwick to East Williamsburg. <laughs> no, I'm just going to bike from like my apartment to the bodega, <laughs> which I did. And it was, it was fine. And I realized that biking is the best thing for my anxiety ever which sounds counter what, but it's because you have to be present when you're biking, even more present than when I'm on stage, you know? Because if I fuck up on here, I'm not gonna like get hit by a U-Haul. 
But when I'm biking, it's like I'm just like trying to feel the breeze and the undulating streamers, and then all of a sudden, like stray toddler on the crosswalk. What the fuck? Get your kid. Like it's very you have to focus. <laughs> so I came up with this new mantra called "Shut up and bike," and I just say it to myself over and over again. You shut up and bike. You shut up and bike. You shut up and bike. And I use it for everything, not just biking. I I gotta go to this party. Gotta go to this lesbian networking party. You just shut up and bike. You shut up and bike. <laughs> Oh, gotta go get coffee in the morning, leave the house, shower, shut up and bike, shut up and bike, gotta go do this show tonight, shut up and bike, and, and it's great. I, uh, you know, I don't think you have to do things to be joyful or get over your anxiety. There's a lot of introverts. We, we can listen to Barbra Streisand in our bedroom and we can still not be anxious, but for me, I needed to participate to get over it, and so that's what I did. And a lot of days, I don't shut up and bike. I just don't get it done. I stay home and I deal with it. And other days, I fucking shut up and bike. Uh, but either of those days, victory. Thank you. That was a great story. What did I tell you? You can find more about Mindy Raff online at mindyraff.com. She's so lucky she got her own domain. Robin Cloud is a stand-up comedian and filmmaker based in Los Angeles. She's been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Diva Magazine, and on Go Magazine's list of top 100 women we love. She's appeared at the Women in Comedy Festival, the Ohio Lesbian Festival, and most recently at the 2019 Tribeca Film Festival, where she premiered a series she adapted from the story you're about to hear. That story was recorded at Tell's Black History Month show in February 2017. Oh, how's everybody doing? Good. It's been a good show. Good show. All right. So uh, everything. Oh, my God. When I got your text, I was like, oh, I got a story for y'all. Everything. All right. So um, I grew up hearing a story about some ancestors of mine who <laughs> there is a church choir here in the middle. Here. There she is. Just uh, of one. Um, <laughs> and uh, my whole life I heard the story that I had these cousins and they were called the Nebraska cousins. And they were cousins of mine that, uh, they were my grandmother's first cousin. Um, my grandmother's name is Maydell, and uh, her cousin was named Willa May. They loved the name, they loved the name May in my family. Lots of Willa Mays and Johnny May and, and, and lots of Mays. Anyway, um, so all my life I heard a story that, uh, that these, this particular woman had, uh, was born in South Carolina, in Somerton, South Carolina, moved up to Harlem got married, and around the 1940s with her husband, um, they decided that they were gonna pass for white. And they left Harlem and drove across, with their eldest son at the time, who was six years old, drove across the country and stopped in Chicago, but then, and kept going. I think they were on their way to Arizona, but somehow they stopped in Omaha, Nebraska. Why, I do not know. So they ended up landing in Omaha, Nebraska, and for years, my whole life, it was like, oh yeah, we got those Nebraska cousins. But no, I'd never seen them, never 
saw photos, didn't know. All I knew was that they were passing for white. And most of my family members, like my grandma, they were like, well, fuck them. <laughs> was their attitude, because they were like, you know, they don't want to be a part of our family. That's fine. They're doing their own thing out there, whatever. So my whole life, I hear this story over and over again. Then my grandmother is like, like in her early 80s, and I decide, you know, she's, she's the youngest of 12, and she's getting up there. So she's the keeper of all the family history, the stories. We've got my mother's attic is full of boxes and boxes of her photo albums of everyone. Not like just her grandchildren, but like other people's grandchildren. She'll have photos of somebody from basketball camp. I'm like, who is this? She's like, oh, that was my neighbor's grandson. You know, <laughs> just like... So she's her own living library. Um, and I kept pressing her. I was like, Nana, what, what's the name of those cousins out in Nebraska? And she would just be like, <laughs> in true South Carolina fashion, you know, and just would never tell me. And then finally one day she was like, oh, you're talking about Willamay? And I was like, Willamay, ding, 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 finally, right? So about eight years ago, I got, finally got the name, Willa Mae Watson, right? So I just go to Google, and I'm like, Willa Mae Watson, Omaha, Nebraska. Boom, phone number comes up. And I was like, oh, my God. Was it, is it really this easy to find these missing cousins that have been passing for white since 1940? <laughs> Thanks, Google. Um, so it was Martin Luther King's day, and I was home. <laughs> And I sat with the information for a while and that day, and I was, should I call? Should I call? Because maybe they're looking for us. Maybe the kids of these two people are looking for us, you know, because they don't know, right? So I call, and um, the phone rings, and I think I'm calling Willa Mae's house, but she's like in her 80s, and so it actually gets transferred to her daughter, Becky Jo, Becky Joe's house, and Becky Joe answers the phone. And she's like, hello? You know, and I'm like, hey, is this Willa Mae? And she's like, no, Willa Mae's my mother. Um, you know, she's in a nursing home, so I had the phone, her line transferred to my house. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I, uh, I think we're related. Um, you know, my grandmother is Maydell L. Reagan, and she grew up in South Carolina in Somerton, and, and your mom is her first cousin. You know, their parents were brother and sister, and I tell her all, everything that I know about how we're connected. And, um, you know, she's like, oh, oh, I've been researching. I've been trying to find you guys, she says. And I'm like, oh, you really? You have? You've been trying to find us? She says, yes, my mother, I, I knew my mom was from Somerton, but, you know, she never talked about her family. She said that she was an orphan and that she didn't have any siblings. And that the, one, the bit of land that she had that she had inherited in South Carolina, she sold it to buy a land in a lake house in Nebraska. And I was like, oh, wow, well, did your mother tell you that you're black? <laughs> and there was a pause. And she goes, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm black. Our family's black. Another pause, and she says, well, that explains why I have to straighten my hair. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So she's like, so my mother was black. I was like, your parents are black. Both your parents are black. 
And she was like, what? Like her mind, I imagine. I wish I'd been able to do it in person, but it was over the phone. And I, so she was just like, what? So I continued to tell her the story. And then it starts. We exchange emails. And for the next eight years, we've been emailing back and forth, sending photos, realizing who we're connected to. And so out of the original two people that left Harlem, now there are 170 descendants. Because along the way, they turned, they like converted to Catholicism. And so everyone married a white person and then had like not, no lie, like seven to 12 children each. So there were six of them, six kids. And then one of them has 12, 12 children. Um, so now there are all these people <laughs> who are slowly learning, trickling, trickling, learning their true identity. Um, so this summer, um, in August, every year, every five years, we have a big family reunion in South Carolina. And so I told uh, Becky Jo that we were having the family reunion and I'd love for her to come. And she was like, okay, I'm going to come this year. So um, I decided, because this is like, a, I'm a filmmaker, right, in addition to writing and being a stand-up comic. And so I was like, I'm filming this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a documentary now. Um, so I get a, a cinematographer to come with me. And we meet, and I go, and I'm like, I will meet you at the airport, and I'll drive you there, and I'll just, like, be your person the whole time. And she's very old. She, well, she's not old. She's 66, but she's had, like, a stroke and a brain tumor, and, like, it's been, like, the worst year of her life. Cancer, like, everything you can imagine. So she's very frail. She weighs, like, 85 pounds. And she wears a wig. She wears, like, <laughs> like a white lady wig. I don't know. Um, and so she gets there, and like she's like wheeling out, and, and we're like, oh, my God. And so my mom has come with me, and uh, you know, I go, and I meet her at the gate, and we embrace. And it's amazing, because it's been eight years of communication. Um, so I, I mean, I knew what she looked like, but to finally see her in person was pretty incredible. So then I take her to the family reunion. Um, and surprisingly enough, her niece drives down from Maryland, um, because she's decided that she wants to come, too. And so they walk in. And they're basically surrounded by, like, 50 people that look just like them. You know, like, her mother and my grandmother, they were first cousins. I mean, they look like they could have been sisters. Um, and they walk into a room, and it's all these black folks. And everyone embraces them. Everyone is, like, the Nebraska cousins. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> because we all knew about them, but they didn't know about us. Um, and so they spent about four days there, and it was an incredible experience for them. I ended up finding a photo album of my grandmother's, where, um, which was 1983, it was our family reunion in New Jersey, and their mother had actually snuck out of Nebraska and come, had come to the family reunion. And there she was, this woman had spent the majority of her adult life passing for white, standing in the family photo, right in the front with all of her black family that she never told anyone about. And Becky Jo was like, oh my God, I can't believe she lied to us, right? So they, there's so many kids and so many children and like, they just lie to every single person. Um, so then I decided, well, I guess I have to go to Nebraska, right? I mean, I gotta go meet these white black people. <laughs> so 
so I pack up, bring the cinematographer, and we go to Nebraska. Um, and I arrive in Omaha, and I've never been to Nebraska. And, you know, it wasn't as white as I thought it was going to be. And I mean, it's pretty fucking white. But, like, there were people of color floating around. Um, and so I end up meeting two of my cousins. Yeah, just floating. Like, just, just floating around. Um, it, like, there are actually a lot of Sudanese uh, people there. So, like, you'd be walking, and then all of a sudden you'd see, like, a six-foot-five black guy. And I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> What's happening? Um, and so I ended up meeting with Becky Joe's niece and nephew, who are now technically, I guess, their, their dad is black. Right, and he married a white woman, so they're they're biracial, but they look white and they identify as white. Um, and I think Katie, uh, the niece, she like is still in denial. You know, she's looking at me, <laughs> she's looking at my black face, and I'm flipping through, showing her all the pictures. And I think she gets it, but like I'm asking them, how does this change your perception of the world, right? Because you are now like technically a person of color, but your whole life you've been white. And like they can't even answer the question because it's too big of a, of a shift. Um, and I think she like almost didn't really believe me in some ways. So recently, uh, so I came back. So Nebraska was interesting and um, I wanted to meet with Josh's dad who was one of the sibling, one of the six original siblings, but he refused to meet with me. Um, because he was too, and he told his son to tell me that he was, he's not mad at me, but he's so upset at his parents that he couldn't, he didn't want his anger to be taken out on me um, because he just couldn't believe the level of betrayal. Um, because he spent his whole life, because he has an afro, he's my complexion, he has an afro, and he spent his whole life with his parents telling him, hey, you're bohemian, whatever the fuck that is. And like, you know, black people being like, you're black, you know, and white people being like, you're not white. And, you know, being called the N-word and all types of stuff. And him spending his whole life defending his race, or at least the race that he thought he was. And so now at 70, here I come, like being like, uh, actually, yeah, you're black. I don't know what to tell you. Um, so I'm hoping that I can make another trip out there and that after some time passes that he'll be more open to meeting with me. Um, but I did just get a photograph, a text photo from one of my cousins, Katie, who, who got a DNA test because I think she still didn't really believe it or I think she thought maybe her blackness was like 7% or like, you know, like, <laughs> like 0.2, you know, or something like that on the DNA test. And so she sent me, <laughs> she sent me the, and it was like 15%, you know, which makes sense because my family has a lot of white ancestors. So like, like on my, my DNA, I'm like 66% black and 27% European. And that's with two black parents. So like she's got a white mom and a black dad and she's still a quarter. So <laughs> in response, I sent her a photo of Willa May's sister who married a very, very uh, dark-skinned black man. And I was like, this is your grandmother's sister. And you would have never met her because they couldn't come out because he would have revealed who the family was. And it was like radio silence. So, um, yeah, I, right now I'm in the process of making this documentary. I'm exploring the ideas of race and religion because my cousin Becky Jo is a staunch Republican. She's anti-gay. She's uh, pro-life. Um, 
she asked me what religion I was. I told her I was pagan. <laughs> and she goes, what does that entail? <laughs> and I was like, I just, you know, I celebrate the, world, the, the earth. <laughs> and she was like, okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she, and then every so often she sends me some crazy pro-Trump, pro-life email, which I delete. And I still don't understand why she sends that stuff to me. Um, I s did respond one time with, I am not a Trump supporter. Thank you. <laughs> but um, so now we're going through the documentary and, and the process of that and exploring family members and, and looking at the concept of America as one country, my family as one family, but a family that's experienced two very different Americas. Um, so that's, I don't know, I guess 2018, maybe it'll be out and about. But that's it. Happy Black History Month. <laughs> Uh, I love Robin. She's a great friend of mine. I was on her podcast. Now she's on my podcast. I'm very grateful whenever she performs, and I hope you enjoyed it. Robin's docu-series, Passing a Family in Black and White, was produced by Topic Studios, and you can find out more about it and about Robin Cloud by following her on Twitter, at Robin Cloud, and on Instagram, at Robin Cloud Comedy. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in. And queer folks, just remember, if you don't tell your story, someone else will. So go out there and tell queer stories, queens. Tell is created, hosted, and produced by me, Dre Campbell, and co-produced by Mariel Reyes. The stories are recorded live on location at the Bureau of General Services Queer Division, a pop-and-pop bookshop and event space in the LGBTQ Center in Manhattan. Go say hi to Greg and Donnie who run BGSQD and tell them we sent you. Tell is recorded by Anitha Joseph, Mariel Reyes, and Onel Moulet, and is edited by Mariel Reyes and Kyrell Palmer. Our theme song was written and recorded by Drake Campbell and Peter Letra. Emily Bogosian is the captain, and Sasha Mathias is the bigger boat. Remember to follow us on Spotify, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google us on Google Play, and slide into our DMs at TellQueers, or DreBiz on Instagram and Twitter. That's Queers and Biz with a Z. Tell is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.